Good morning, everybody, and a warm welcome to everybody, regulars and visitors. Um, we're very happy to welcome this morning Alex Warley-Lack from our sister church in Richmond. Um, Alex is um, currently training in, um, in the worship studies course that's being run here, um, and uh, so this is one of his uh, services that he's going to be assessed. So from the stalls, we'd also like to welcome Reverend David Usher, who is our district minister, sitting just there. Um, and Alex is Professor of European Union Politics at the University of Surrey. Um, I have every confidence this service will be in English. Um, so, so again, yes, welcome Alex, and I'm going to hand over to you now. Thank you very much for the opportunity to lead service this morning. It's a great pleasure to be here. Could I uh, ask us, before we light the chalice, to start with some singing from Margaret, please. Thank you. What a beautiful way to start the service. As I light the chalice, will you join with me in a moment of prayer or reflection, as is most your custom? May we who are gathered here connect to each other with love and kindness. May we who are gathered here feel the presence of our ancestors and remember how our choices shape the lives of those who come after. May we who are gathered here 
join in fellowship with Unitarians around the world. May we who are gathered here see more clearly the love, the dance, the light that some call God and others life. Amen. I'd like to call forward two people who've kindly offered to give some readings for us this morning. Um, The first is Carol, and she's going to read a poem called I Feel Sorry for Jesus by Naomi Shihab Nye. I love the title, I Feel Sorry for Jesus. People won't leave him alone. I know he said, wherever two or more are gathered in my name, but I'll bet some days he regrets it. Cozily they tell us what he wants and doesn't want, as if they just got an email. Remember telephone, that pass it on game where the message changed dramatically by the time it rounded the circle. Well, people blame terrible pieties on Jesus. They want to be his special pet. Jesus deserves better. I think he's been exhausted for a very long time. He went into the desert, friends. He didn't go into the pomp. He didn't go into the golden chandeliers and say, the truth tastes better here. See, I'm talking like I know. It's dangerous talking for Jesus. You get carried away almost immediately. I stood in the spot where he was born. I closed my eyes where he died and didn't die. Every twist of the Via Dolorosa was written on my skin. And that makes me feel like being silent for him, you know? A secret pouch of listening. You won't hear me mention this again. Thank you. And now, Tristan, who's going to read for us The Hidden Singer by Wendell Berry. The gods are less for their love of praise. Above and below them all is a spirit that needs nothing but its own wholeness, its health, and ours. It has made all things by dividing itself. It will be whole again. To its joy we come together, the seer and the seen, the eater and the eaten, the lover and the loved. 
In our joining it knows itself. It is with us then, not as the gods whose names crest in unearthly fire, but as a little bird hidden in the leaves who sings quietly and waits and sings. When I rejected God, I was about 12. I was a lefty and a child of the Enlightenment. I hated the churches that I knew of, full of people preaching love, but spurning those who fell foul of their moral codes. As I became more aware of my sexuality, this only strengthened. Gay men and women were certainly not welcome in most churches in the 1980s, and in many, we're still not. How I felt about church could be summed up in the words of Thack Sweeney, who is a character in the Tales of the Series, uh, sorry, Tales of the City series by Armistead Morpin. Why should I kiss the Pope's butt when he doesn't even approve of mine? But it was God I rejected as well as the church. The place where I grew up, rural North Wales, was not exactly cosmopolitan, and the only view of God that I experienced directly, either nearby or on the shallow views you get put across on the TV, was of Jehovah the Omnipotent, three in one, and as psychotic as that implies. If there was such a God, I didn't want anything to do with him. But there was a God-shaped hole in my life from then on. I didn't know it at first, but I became something of a seeker in my late teens, and then again in my late twenties and thirties. Now, those journeyings that I went on in Wicca and Buddhism, they helped shape me and my views, but I never really found a place I felt I belonged until I discovered Unitarian Universalism a few years ago. Hurrah! (coughs) But hold on. What to do about the God-shaped hole? It's one thing to come to church and explore spiritual matters, but quite another to know what to do about the God thing. There's the old joke about Unitarian Universalists. Jews pray to Yahweh, Muslims to Allah, Odinists to Odin, and you use to whom it may concern. I was glad to have found a place that welcomed any and all views of God, the divine mystery, but I couldn't really keep on having an anonymous addressee of my prayers. Have you tried praying along these lines? Dear spirit of any gender and none, many names and none, reachable through any tradition, but I'm not sure if you can hear this in a meaningful way, but here goes anyway. I have. And let me tell you, it's not a good way to shut off your head and open your heart. So, I needed a better idea of God. And then, the old Auschwitz test came right back from 25 years previously to slap me on the chops. How can we believe in a God 
who either couldn't prevent the Nazis or any other evil, or who chose not to. If he couldn't, then why bother with him? And if he wouldn't, what a monster. Could a God of love allow six million of his supposedly chosen people to meet with such disgusting ends in Auschwitz and other places, if he could stop it? No. So, how could I find a way forward, filling this God-shaped hole that felt right spiritually and emotionally, but I could also defend rationally? Well, there are different ways you can do this, and I suppose everybody has to find their own. One way, which I tried for a while, is to choose a path in which there is no God, or gods exist but are largely irrelevant. Like Buddhism, at least in most of its variants. And there's a lot in Buddhism that I love. But ultimately, I found it to be too dry. And although I do try to practice mindfulness and compassion, for me, it's proven mostly to be a spirituality of the head. And for me, that wasn't enough. God-shaped hole and all that. Another way might be to choose a path which assumes the existence of many gods, perhaps as the various faces of the ultimate mystery. Such polytheism is present in Hinduism, of course, and most contemporary forms of paganism. And although it can be a complicated idea to get your head round, it does enable you, as a believer, to work with different aspects of yourself and your own personality, or different aspects of life in general at any given time, and to develop a relationship with the aspects of the divine that you, as an individual, find most compelling or helpful or attractive. Now, for me, this has a lot to it, not least because in paganism and indeed in most forms of Hinduism, you don't expect any individual goddess or god to have all the answers or to be all-powerful. If you wanted sex tips, you would not be asking the Roman goddess of the hearth, Vesta. And if you wanted to pray for peace, you wouldn't be trying to invoke the Celtic warrior goddess, the Morrigan. But that doesn't really do it for me either. It can satisfy my heart, and in much of the work that Wiccans do, a form of of goddess worshipping primarily uh, neo-paganism, I see psychological truth because they draw very clearly on a lot of the work of Carl Jung. But my head isn't satisfied with that, because I find it difficult to accept the way that many pagans give the divine human characteristics and squabbles, seeing the god forms that we as a species devise, not as symbols or metaphors or call signs to a great mystery, but instead becoming just as devoted to their personified gods, be they Breed or Diana or Frey or whatever, as many Christians are to Jehovah and Jesus, Holy Spirit and even Mary. The problem with this is that many of these god forms become vainglorious travellers strutting around the universe like so many Mick Jaggers. And the poem that Tristan read earlier by Wendell Berry 
tells us we need to be wary of this. The other thing I can't get around, and I wonder if it's a problem for you as well, is the idea of um, what I call selective divine intervention, or favouritism, if you like. Now suppose that we all this morning send up a suitable prayer, librations and sacrifices to the goddess Vesta. And she replies by giving us a warm and safe home, a place to welcome friends and comfort. But denies that to many others because they didn't ask her for it. And we did. For me, that's the Auschwitz test again, only on an everyday level. It's not about the huge, big evils of the world. But when you think about it, it's on the same continuum. So where to then, from here? Well, light has been shone for me by the work of process theologians. Now, there's much about this that I don't know. I'm a very amateur theologian. But I have found it very useful in my own striving to try to bring head and heart together in my spiritual life. Now, as many of you doubtless know, process theology comes from the Christian tradition, but I think it can be adapted and used in many other traditions too. Karen Armstrong, probably a favourite modern-day Unitarian-style author, says in her recent book, The Case for God, that pre-modern religion humanised the sacred so that we could make it speak to hearts and minds in full understanding that the reality we're trying to grasp behind those names, behind those ideas, is ineffable, mysterious. So what she means by this, I think, is that we mustn't think of God in the same way that we think of humans. We can give God names and we can give God physical forms, but we have to remember that ultimately she is fully captured by none of them. And I also think we have to be careful, because although there are many people who've been liked to see by with their theology, with their poetry, with their literature, with so many things, no one can really be sure that he or she speaks for God. And the poem by Naomi Shihab Nye that Carol read earlier, I think, is absolutely spot on about that. So, with all these riders and caveats, on to process theology. Now, in this approach, we see God, whatever name we choose to give her or him, as imminent in creation. In other words, as part of the created world, the physically manifested universe but yet also somehow separate from it. She is in everything, and everything is in him. But the divine mystery is not something we can ever fully, completely understand. In process theology, the perhaps main way, as I understand it anyway, of interpreting God is to see God as love, the ground not only of existence but of goodness, as a force that is always with us, interweaving himself with creation. One of the most eminent process theologians, an American writer called um, C. Robert Mesler, argues that God is 
and I quote here, the unique subject whose love is the foundation of reality. God is the supremely related one, sharing the experience of every creature and experiencing every creature. If you don't mind, I'll just read that again because I find it very um, useful. God is the unique subject whose love is the foundation of reality. God is the supremely related one, sharing the experience of every creature and experiencing every creature. What I think this means is that God is constantly revealing herself to and through creation. She loves, suffers, dies and is born with us as part of her unfolding. What's more, if we see God in this way, it gives us responsibilities too. Because for process theologians, God requires us, her creation, to help her fulfil her purpose, to make real in the material realm what she intends to come about. This means that she is constantly calling us to choose the good, to prevent evil and eased suffering as best we can. This is his purpose for us and for all creation. In process theology, God is persuasive, not coercive. She's the source of our freedom as humans and therefore she cannot overrule it, but constantly seeks to make us make the best choices we can and to make the best of the impact of our choices when we haven't done quite as well as we might. He can't force us to do anything, but he can encourage us and try through us and the rest of creation to push the universe's process of evolution and unfolding towards the good. Why do I find this helpful? Well, maybe because I'm an academic and I like reading and I like books and I follow abstract arguments, perhaps too much for my own good. But strangely, I like this because it speaks to my heart as well as to my head. Such a God as the one I've just described is one that I can love and pray to, whatever name and face that I give him. And I can do so in the full understanding that she can help and can provide comfort and can provide pointers and signs. But she can't make everything okay. And she can't absolve me of responsibility for what I do and how I behave like a big cosmic nanny. For me, this helps me answer some of the big questions like, why are we here? Why is there something rather than nothing? Why is there a material universe for us to inhabit? Because it gets to this idea of the realisation of God through creation. I also see it as a useful place to start thinking about a moral code as well. Now, this doesn't mean I have to invent something that doesn't exist. Far from it. I see it as a means of, of bringing home the golden rule of basically living compassionately and doing as you would be done by. So... 
I give my process God many names. Sometimes Kuan Yin, the goddess or bodhisattva of the Chinese Buddhist tradition. Sometimes Hecate, Greek goddess. Sometimes Jesus. Sometimes something else. The name doesn't really matter. Name unnamed, right? What counts is that such a god or goddess can fill the hole in my soul and also that she passes the Auschwitz test. I'd now like to invite you to take part in a section of the service which you can either do through quiet reflection or through participating in the wider group. You'll have noticed that there are post-its around somewhere and if you haven't got any, um, I'm sure we can get some distributed. And pencils too. And what I ask you to do is to take just a few moments. If you're a theist somebody who believes in a God of whatever kind, to think about what kind of role or what kind of God or form of God or goddess means something to you and why that is. And if you're an atheist, someone who doesn't believe in a God of any kind or believes that they are perhaps existent but irrelevant, is there anything in your spiritual life that takes the place of a God? And if so, what is that? There's no right answers here. It's merely a way of trying to think about the various ways that people fill the God-shaped hole in their lives or proceed without one. And once you've taken a few minutes to write anything, if you choose, I'm going to collect them in a bowl and then I will read some of them out from here. So don't worry, I can't identify anybody. So share as much or as little as you choose. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to take a few minutes to read these out because I think it's a really lovely way of getting a sense of what other people in the congregation think and feel about their spiritual practices. Nature and compassion, the God within. God is beyond our puny understanding, but in my life is an undeniable force. George Bernard Shaw said... God created man in his image, 
and man has returned the favour. That says it all to me, we can't limit God to our minds. What takes the place of God in my spiritual life is moving through space, dancing, using my body to support me, walking, running, being outside, singing, friends, films, being creative, cooking. I tend to give meaning and set my intentions on the physical world. Somehow I never get bored by the wow of nature and life. I don't consider myself an atheist nor a theist in the way I don't believe there is a God, external to humanity, but a construct of responses of people to the divine love or compassion. Very honest one here. I'm not quite sure yet. I don't think any of us are. God, as the creator of the universe, there is no other way to explain its existence. I do not find the term God very helpful, quite the opposite. I have no problems with the phrase spirit of life or something similar. In my mind, religion is very largely symbolic. What unites us is our, is our common humanity. That is our source of meaning. <laughs> God is a verb. Yeah. And the devil's a full stop. <laughs> the mysterious essence of a life itself. I too have a process type understanding of God, and I do use the name God most often, but also see Godness expressed through Buddha, Jesus, and in an unmediated mystical way in everyday life. God or Goddess as a primary driving energy force within and without all existence. The creator, good, humanism, belief humanity is slowly evolving to higher moral level or civilization. The being or spirit that occupies the DNA of every human being. God is us and we are God. As evolution moves on, this will become ever more apparent. almost a haiku. God is everything. God is nothing. God is love. God is. God is not. Inexplicable, even shocking moments of beauty, courage, generosity or kindness that seem to transcend any selfish gene concept. Theist, trust in the inexplicable, the magic in words, comfort. And then last, but by no means least, God is that which allows me to live with serenity amidst seeming chaos. 
cruelty and confusion because it contains the larger wholeness and goodness of life. Thank you so much for all those sharings, some very, very beautiful expressions. We come now to the close of the service and we'll close with music but before that benediction, these words by Celia Cartwright Let us go in peace to live together in harmony to see beauty in everything to know wonder in each passing moment and to walk gently with our God So may it be Amen.